lots and lots and lots of challenges. Everything was peachy keen for everybody. No struggles, no challenges. Everything was just, hmm. <laughs> no challenges, eh? Wow. So we're going to, um, normally we are in uh, Romans. I want to, uh, since this is the last Sunday of the year, I want to kind of preach a message on a little bit of encouragement. Unless nobody needs encouragement. I certainly do. So we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, and we'll just read the first, I think, three verses, and then we're going to tease them apart. So if you want to follow along on the overheads there, just waiting for our Cheryl up there. We're good. So we're going to read Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read the first three verses, and again, you guys can follow along with me. Paul's writing a church that he had planted a couple years before this, and this is what he's saying, because he really cared about that flock that he planted, that he was shepherding there. So he says this, If, therefore, there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, <clears throat> if there is any affection and compassion, any of these things are there, make my joy complete, being of the same mind, maintaining, look at the text, the same love, united, in spirit, intent on purpose. And I think I'm going to read a couple more. I don't know if they're up there, but if this is all going on, Paul says, then we are to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, <clears throat> but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. And I'll read verse 4. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. That's a challenge, isn't it? So, slide 4. A couple questions to draw you into this. Ask yourself these questions, guys. Are people encouraged because of the relationship they have with you? You're a born-again Christian. You profess Christ. Ask yourself that question honestly. Are people, are they encouraged because of the relationship they have with you? Does your way of life encourage other people to want to know more about the Lord? Think about the things that come out of your mouth and your behaviors, the things you do. Does the way you and I, that we live out our life, does that encourage other people to want to know more about the Lord? They, they see that hope in us in a very, very complex, falling apart world. And do I have enough compassion to walk with people when they're struggling? Now, I know they're tough questions to swallow, but they need to be asked. 
because I, for one, don't want 2024, if the Lord allows me into 2024, to live the way I did in 2023. Amen? Amen. So let's look at Paul's conditional clause here. Let's look at slide 5 and 6. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, notice the four ifs, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, or any affection and compassion, and the New Living Translation puts it this way, slide 6. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Are you encouraged because you belong to Him? Is there any comfort you're deriving from His love? Any fellowship together with that Holy Spirit that indwells a believer? Are our hearts, church, are they tender and compassionate hearts? So you see those ifs there. Now, I don't want to make your eyes glaze over as my beautiful wife puts it, but if, these ifs are what we call a conditional clause. Or for you people like Dr. Carter, a Greek particle. It's like these signposts for you and I. And what it's doing here for us is it's bringing out the emotion and mood of Paul who penned this letter over 2,000 years ago. But I want you to see Paul's deep emotion when he penned this letter. So look at that first word that Paul uses in slide 7. Encouragement. Greek word there is paraklesis. It's actually two Greek words that put together, kind of like we have the word truck driver or something like that. So that para means to come alongside or walk alongside and the word klesis, from the word kletos, means to call. To call alongside or to come alongside. To come alongside someone to bring comfort and counsel. So me being this history word guy, I really wanted to say, well, what is really more of the origin of this word? Well, slide eight. So that word encourage, also in English is a combination from the French of two words. And meaning to put something in. Courage meaning valor, quality of your mind. It enables us to meet danger and trouble without fear. So encourage. So let me ask you this morning, church, believers, if God, the Holy Spirit, who is a person, is truly dwelling in you, He and put Himself in you, He's calling or walking with you, which means that you are never alone even when your feelings mislead you and you think you're alone. Does that help you with fear? He's your paraclesis. He's the one that comes alongside of you and walks with you. When you're struggling, does that encourage you? If you belong to Christ, does that encourage you? Let's look at slide 9. So encouragement, coming alongside someone, bringing comfort and counsel to them when they're hurting and destroyed, and broken, and they think there's nothing left. Do we do that as a body of believers? Do we, slide 9, do we provide comfort to people when they're suffering and hurting? Do we, koinonia, do we fellowship with people in this church, or do we bolt right out the door after service, get our goodies and run, like so many people do? Do we, church, have this tenderness do we have this genuine concern for others especially in the body of Christ the church or do we not do this because we have a fear of being vulnerable and we don't want people to get to know real us 
Ooh, got quiet, Dr. Carter. You know, as I thought deeply about this, look at slide 10. I had to ask myself these questions. And you can ask these to yourself. Do I have behaviors that I practice that discourage the people in my life? Ooh, better say that one again. Do you and I, do we have behaviors that we practice that actually discourage the people in our lives? When they're, when they're with us or around us, do they have a loss of confidence in who the Lord is because we're always putting God on trial because things don't go the way we want them to go? It's getting quieter now, doctor. Do they doubt God because they see you doubting God? Do, church, do they have a lack of tenderness and concern for others because it conflicts with their agenda? Because it's all about them. So then, here's the question this morning, and we'll go to slide 11. What does it mean to be in Christ? I want you to really think about that this morning. What does it mean, and I hope you're paying attention, what does it mean to be in Christ? Let me show you how John Stott, uh, Dr. John R. Stott defines it. He says this, and I, I think I taught this like five or six years ago. To be in Christ does not mean to be inside Christ as tools are in a toolbox or the clothes in a closet. It doesn't mean that. What it does mean is to be organically united to Christ as a limb is in the body or a branch is in the tree. It is this personal relationship with Christ that is the distinctive mark of His authentic followers. So are you organically united to Christ, much like a limb is to your body? Do you have that intimacy, that closeness with Jesus Christ? A couple verses to bring this out. We're going to do slide 12 through 15, guys. In Christ Jesus, you've become a new creation and a son or daughter of God. If anyone is in Christ organically united to Christ, he's a new creation because that limb is hooked to that body, which is Christ. The old has passed away. Has that happened in your life? Behold, the new has come. In Christ Jesus, everything you really need will be supplied. Where does it say that? Philippians 4. My God will supply. How many needs? Every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Not your wants, but your needs. Slide 13. In Christ Jesus, the Irene, the peace of God, will guard your heart and mind. Oh, I could spend a lot of time on that. In Christ Jesus, the peace of God will guard your heart and mind. So, where does it say that? I'm glad you asked. It's Philippians 4 again. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When the world looks like it's falling apart and your life is trashed, if you are organically united to Christ, He will supply your needs. He's the one that walks with you through it. 
Listen, God wants you to go through the fire to train you, to teach you to come to the end of yourself, to learn to rely on Him. Okay? So when you're being persecuted, you're struggling, you know, our, our emotions tend to say, God doesn't love me. God doesn't talk to me. This is just the opposite. God does love you, but he wants to grow you. He wants you to bring you to the end of yourself to where there's nothing left but him because if you're, you're organically united to him, he's going to see you through it because you're his. In Christ Jesus, you were redeemed and forgiven for how many of your sins? All, all pasa, all your sins. <clears throat> in Ephesians 1, in Christ, being if you're organically united to Christ and the Holy Spirit indwells you, we have redemption through His blood, church. That crimson blood that was shed on that cross at Calvary that bought you back with the price, paid your sin debt in full. Redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. True forgiveness, by the way, true forgiveness doesn't mean you forget. A lot of Maybe secular counselors say, well, you forget all. No. True forgiveness is that you choose not to make the person that harmed you pay for the harm they did to you, but you absorb this cost yourself because then you were putting him on full display. Okay? Slide 14. In Christ Jesus, you are justified, declared, or made right before God, and that righteousness of God in Christ is imputed to you. And you've heard me say it a million times, the very worst about you and I was placed on Jesus and the very best about him was placed on us. So we stand before the Father. He sees us clothed in the robe of his Son. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And it's slide 15. Paul says this, if there's any consolation love, or the NLT puts it, any comfort from his love. What does consolation mean? It means to provide comfort to a person who is suffering. You know, God sees when we suffer. You know, he's, he's not up there, you know, with cataract surgery that he needs. He, he knows when you're, he knew you were going to suffer a gazillion years before he created you in your mother's womb. You know, I remember probably 10 to 12 years now, I shared with you guys this um, thing that this, this, this uh, teacher was asking these kids that were like four to eight years old. Teacher was asking these, and again, four years old to eight years old, now think about it. Teacher was asking them, he says, uh, okay, class, what does love mean? And the one that stuck out at me out of the 10 or 12 that I read was <coughs> there was this boy about maybe four years old. And, and the boy, four years old, he sees his el elderly neighbor who just lost his wife. And seeing the, this elderly guy crying on his porch, the little boy, he walks over to him, and all he does is he sits on the guy's lap. That's all he had to do. Sits on his lap. Just sat there with him. He came back. The mom asked the four-year-old, four-year-old son says son what did he do when you went over there he replied mom nothing else I just I just helped him cry slide 16 do we have that kind of compassion for people or is it all about me and you Preach, brother. 
Do, do we have this genuine care for others where we're willing to help and comfort them? Step out of our comfort zone. Hear me this morning. It is this genuine love that Christ gives to unworthy sinners in salvation. That's you and me, church. And then Paul says, if there's any fellowship in the Spirit. Listen, for each of you who are truly, truly born again followers of Christ, the Scriptures are very clear that each of one of you is a temple for the Holy Spirit to dwell. Now, I want you to think about how the implications of that before we go on. The real question is, okay, Paul, what did you mean when you said that we are a temple for the Holy Spirit to dwell? Now, if you guys remember your Old Testament, priests would go into a place called the Holy Holies, the Naos, has bells on his robe, and he'd have, they'd have a rope around him. He'd go in there, and he would pour the blood with a hyssop branch onto the Ark of Covenant. The Holy Spirit would come down into the Holy of Holies and take that sinner offering. And Paul says, you know, you're not just the Hurion, which is just the temple in general. It's the outside temple. He uses the Greek word there, naos. You carry that very same Holy Spirit with you that way back in the Old Testament would go into the Holy of Holies to take the blood sacrifice from the priest. You are the Holy of Holies. You are the naos. That's the word he uses there. He doesn't use the word Hurion. He uses the word naos. I want you to think about where you go, the things you say, the things you do, when you're carrying the Holy Spirit with you wherever you go. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed on the day of redemption. Just think about it. Think about it when you're hurling out profanity and you're freaking out and you're doing all these things. Think about who's in there with you because you're not alone. We think we're alone. We, we, we kind of think that God's like this. I don't see it. I don't see it. No, it's just the opposite. Slide 17. Paul says in, to this church of Corinth, he says, Don't you guys know that your body is the naos of the Holy Spirit who is where? What's it say? Not Forgive me. I'm insignificant. He's in you. There's that organic uniting with you and God the Holy Spirit indwelling you. And by the way, the Greek there, John 1.14, it's a permanent indwelling. God doesn't go in there and say, the lease is up in three years, I'm leaving. I'm evicting myself. No, that's a permanent indwelling. So never forget that. Keep that in your mind. He says, your body is the temple for the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have or have received from God, and that you are not your own. How easy it is to forget that we were bought with a price. And then Paul uses this word, slide 18, fellowship, koinonia. That, the word fellowship there, this, it has the idea of this, this intimacy, this shared intimate relationship, this voluntary participating with each other. Okay, church, there, there is to be this intimate, shared relationship with God, the Holy Spirit, where you and I yield and we are led by Him. We're not led by the stuff on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and 16 hours a day playing video games. This verse says that we are led by Him. Are we yielding our life over to Him? 
when we wake up in the morning, God, how do you want to use me today to glorify you? And I don't think he has it in mind six hours a day on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and video games. I don't see that anywhere in the text. See, our unity as a body of believers is glued together with the Holy Spirit indwelling in each of us. <coughs> so we should be working together in unity. And then Paul finishes this, slide 18. If any affection and compassion. Affection, what does it mean? Affection has the idea of this tenderness and this fondness that we have for somebody. You ever notice somebody you really love, you're very tender, and you're fond, and you want to you serve that person, you love them? Compassion, here as it is used, has the idea of the sympathy and genuine concern for somebody who is suffering. Think through that this morning. Do we have compassion for people, thank you, that are suffering, church? Do, do we feel this way towards people or we, do we tend to be on a fault-finding expedition about everybody else's behavior? Well, I got quiet again, Dr. Carter. I don't know. When do you consider what John MacArthur says? Slide 19. This is what MacArthur says. There is an implied negative side to all four of these positive admonitions. Namely, that failing to seek and preserve spiritual unity weakens Christ's church. Isn't that the truth? Failing to seek and to preserve spiritual unity weakens the church. Even more significantly, such failure to pursue unity is a sin. It is an act of ultimate ingratitude towards God. It is to be willing and eager to receive every blessing that the Lord offers, but unwilling to offer Him anything in return. Boy, that's tough. I want us to think about that this morning. Do we have affection and compassion for each other? If the Holy Spirit is indwelling you, you're going to look and think differently about people. We are all sinners, and we all have our idiosyncrasies, and we all have our shortcomings, Ask my wife, five minutes with me, she can tell you a million of them. We have them. But should we not still be compassionate and affectionate with people? Slide 20. Paul then goes in verse 2. He says, well, after all these ifs, he says then, make my joy complete. Now look at the other four things here. Being of the same mind. Maintaining the same love being united in spirit and intent on one purpose. And what's that? To put Jesus on full display in your life, to lead people to him. I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to figure out we're living in the very last days. Lord could come at any time. We are living in the very last days. So being on intent and purpose has got a lot of significant importance to it. I want you to, again, notice Paul's emotion as he continues with this personal plea towards this young church that wasn't much bigger than ours at this time. He says, slide 21, make my joy complete. Paul, what did you mean? What is joy? What is joy, Paul? Well, the word joy here that Paul's using has the idea of this calm delight, this gladness. In fact, I like how Webster's defines it. <clears throat> it defines joy as the emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune 
but by the prospect of possessing what one desires. What does Paul desire? That we are intent on one purpose. We're united in spirit. We're maintaining the same love. We're, we have the same mindset. And then he says, he made my joy complete. He wants us to bring to completion what he's already started. So church, for this to happen, Paul wants to see disunity that was infecting the Philippian church handled by seeing relationships restored. Don't go into 2024 with unrestored relationships if you can. You see, listen, what, what was going Church is no different 2,000 years ago than it is today. I promise you, people are people. Read the book of Ecclesiastics. What does Paul really want to see happen? He wants to see grumbling, criticizing, murmuring, clicks, and any other kind of divisiveness that's negative. He wants the believers to have an attitude that says all of that is gone from our church. We don't have time to be messing around grumbling and criticizing and murmuring and clicks and these negative divisive behaviors. He doesn't want that. He wants us to be what he tells us to be. Same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Okay, so Paul, what did you mean by being of the same mind? Slide 22. What did you mean by that word phraneo? Well, this word, being of the same mind, this word mindset, has the idea of what you set your affections on. It speaks here of the person's whole attitude, his whole attitude, his whole behavior. It, it carries with it the idea of a settled way of thinking or feeling about someone or something. What is your mindset towards people that hurt you? People you don't like. Well, think about it. What's your mindset? Think about it. And I'm just preaching what the text says. I have to deal with this as much as you. This isn't, this is all of us. This is our mindset. Being of the same mind. So what does that mean? Let's think about it. It's reflected in a person's behavior. It involves the entire person's will, affections, and this person's conscience. Listen, Paul, knowing this about people, he wanted the Philippian believers to be same-minded or one-minded people. He wants to see this in our church as well. And then Mark Hune, what does he say? Slide 23. This is how he teaches this. They are to have the same mindset as God, who saved them and so find unity of purpose. This is not uniformity of thought as if they blindly agree on everything, but diversity within the unity of the gospel of Christ. They are to live it, share in it, in unity in the face of opposition. It is then an appeal for unity in mission, working together with all their diversity, standing in the spirit, contending with the enemies outside the church, not within the church. Very well put. And then Paul, slide 24, says maintaining the same love. Paul, what did you mean by maintaining? It means something that you continually have or hold on to. The verbal form of the word has the idea of this ongoing, continuous action. So it would seem that Paul's admonition is that of holding on to an ongoing attitude 
of love in the church community. It's not something that you just do and stop. It's a present active verb. It's something that we continue to do, to love people this way. See, Paul isn't talking about loving somebody because of their looks. You know, he's not saying you can love them because they wear Abercrombie and Fitch and all these fancy clothing. That's not what he says. He's not talking about because of how they look. He uses the word for love here, which is the word agape toy. And that kind of love is an act of the will. It means that you choose to love somebody regardless of how they treat you. That's hard. That's a challenge, isn't it? He's not using the word astorge, which is the kind of love you'd have for a brother and sister. He's not using the word phileo, which is the kind of love that you'd have for your friends, a brotherly love. He's using the word agape toy here, which is an act of your will. You choose to be committed to loving that person, and it's not predicated on how they look, and it's not predicated on their behavior. You're loving them as an act of will, because God certainly loves you and me with all of our shortcomings and sin, does he not? God doesn't say, I'm going to stop loving you because you don't look pretty. He doesn't say that. It's not about looks. So keep that in mind. It's an act of the will. It's not based on performance. It's a conscious choice you make to be committed to seek the welfare of another person, regardless of how that person treats you. And that's hard, but that's what Christ does for you and I all the time. And it is hard to do. If we are not organically joined or connected to Christ, please understand this. We have no power to do this on our own. So, to continually maintain the same love means that we are to be devoted to each other, giving preference to each other, having a desire to serve each other, contributing to the needs of each other, and yes, even to those who hurt us or persecute us. Pastor Jack, you don't know what so-and-so did. No, but God knows what you did. Now, do you think about this? In 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Bible says we're all going to have to appear upon at the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of the deeds we did in our body, whether good or evil. So think about it. When you're up there and he's playing the video screen right there of everything you ever said or did from the moment you were born till the moment you die, would you really be any different than most of the people that you don't like? Would you want to let that person into heaven that did all that? If it wasn't for the blood of Christ, we'd all be burning in hell. Well, that's a fact. So I want us to look at the sobering words that John penned under the direction of the Holy Spirit that should give all of us pause. And I'm almost done. Look at slide 25 and 26. We know, Greek word there is oidomen, meaning we are fully aware of and are sure that we have passed out of death into life because, because we love the brethren. Now, I want you to see that again. We know. Greek word there is not gnosis. It's the word oidomi. This kind of knowledge that Paul's talking about here isn't like, oh, I think I can remember this person's name from 10 years ago. Now, that Greek word there has the idea of we are fully aware of and we are fully sure that we have passed out of death to life. How do we know that, John? How do we know it? Because we agape toy the Adelphos. We love the brethren. He who does not agape toy continually, because it's a present active again in the Greek, continually remains in death. 
Now, that's a tough one to fill, isn't it? And the NLT puts it this way, slide 26. If we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves that we've passed from death to life. But a person who has no love is still dead. So look at slide 27. Passed out of metabebekamin. What does it mean, passed out of? The idea here in the Greek means you're stepping over or moving from one place to a very different or another place. And it's in the Greek, it's what we call the perfect tense. Remember, the perfect tense represents an action that was complete in the past but has continuing results. So if you got saved back here 10 years ago, the perfect tense says that act, that what happened back here, is still as active as it is here 10 years later. Okay? Dr. Carter said to put some Greek in here, so bear with me. I have to listen to Dr. Carter. So, based on the Greek text, this is also a permanent move. You don't, you don't undie on the cross. You don't lose your salvation. Okay? So, well, where, do you, where does it say that, Pastor Jack? Because you should be able to back it up. Because I was taught you can fall from grace and lose your salvation. Well, first of all, that verse there completely blows it out of the water. But you want more text? Okay, we'll do more. Let's back up. Because I'm saying it's a permanent condition because well, the Greek spells it out. It is clear evidence that you've come to a saving faith in Christ and that you're born again. Hear me this morning. If you're a believer, it's a permanent reality for you because the text is clear. Paul doesn't say you move back to death. Where else does it teach it? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at slide 28. John 6:37. All that the Father gives me will do what? What's it say? Come to me. We call that an effectual calling. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will want. What's it say? I will not want. I will certainly not want. What's it say? I'm not cast out. That word there means to eject. All that the Father comes to me, I will not cast out or reject out. The Greek word there is ekbelo. Now, you guys know your Greek. Have you ever read an exit sign? You all know your Greek. What does it mean? To leave somewhere, right? So ekbalo is the Greek word there. Balo means to throw. So God doesn't say, you know, Dad gave me to you, but I'm going to throw you out. He says, no, the Greek word there is ma. It's not even something to consider. I will never cast you out. That's literally the way that the Greek reads, but I get yelled at if I put too much up. So, You want another verse? Okay. Slide 29. How about John 10, 28? And again, that verse there proves you cannot lose your salvation because God can't lie. John 10, 28. I give eternal life to them. They will want, what's it say? Never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. God's hand is bigger than the devil's. Never perish. Ma apolepone. Never. Not at all. You know, uh, that uh, apolome means to perish, to destroy. He says it will never. So ma apolepone. It will never, ever happen. 
So the continually passed out of death to life. The transfer from death to life occurs the moment you come to a saving faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Don't let any false prophet tell you you can lose your salvation. If you're born again, my God says nobody can snatch you out of my Father's hand or my hand. Bible's clear. How do we know this? What is the evidence that John was saying back in 1 John 3, 14? He uses that word because. Because is what we call a conjunction. What is a conjunction, Pastor Jack? I know you guys love your English class. A conjunction is an action or an instance of two or more events that are occurring at the same time. So you see, loving our brothers is evidence that a person has made a transaction from death to life. You don't earn eternal life by loving your brother. Let me say it again. You do not earn eternal life by doing anything, and especially not loving your brother. You love your brothers and sisters because you possess eternal life. How does he complete this verse? He who does not love abides in death. That's a sobering warning for all of us. Hear me this morning. If there is an absence of love for your brothers and sisters in Christ, it pretty much reveals that you've not passed from death to life. See, that Greek word abides, which is the Greek word manoi, has the idea of somebody that continually remains in death. The state of spiritual death is one in which a person is born. We were born spiritually dead, and we remain spiritually dead if we're not saved. Remember, we inherited our sin nature from our first parents, Adam and Eve. That progeny has been handed down to all of us. You know, you don't have to train somebody how to lie. You don't have to send them to school. Uh, second, third grader, first grader, they, they already know how to do it. Let me finish this up, how he spells it out. Look at slide 32 and 33. You know, John doesn't stop there. He's really driving it home here. Everyone, not some of you, not a couple of you, everyone who hates, literally detests his brother is a murderer and that you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him he's just building upon what he just said in the previous verse okay our English word that we have there is the word hates Maseo slide 33 I want to have Gerhard Kittle kind of unpack this for you because he does it better than anybody I've ever seen. I want you to think what the text says now. Everyone who hates, detests his brother is a murderer. If you hate someone, you're a murderer. That's what the text says. And no murderer has eternal life continually remaining in him. So what does Kittle say? The aversion and hostility of men among themselves. Hatred of God and the righteousness, the aversion, meaning an intense thought or feeling of a definite dislike of men among themselves. To hate, to hate is to live in hostility, meaning this bitter attitude or strong, settled feeling of resentment to the light, to reject it, to avoid its fear. To hate the brethren is to live in the sphere of darkness rather than light. So he says, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. That word murderer that he's using here is 
Anthro, where we get the word anthropos, anthro is where we get the word man, anthropos. Pactanus means slaying or killing. So anthropoctanus means a manslayer, somebody who kills somebody. And John says, everyone who hates, detests his brother is an anthropoctanos, a manslayer. I want you to notice the formal statement, this declaration that John's making here. He's talking to everyone. He's saying everyone. There's no exceptions. There's no middle ground. Church, hear me this morning. Based on what the Bible says. Forgive me, I'm insignificant. What does the Bible say? Anyone who continually hates another person is, in essence, based on what the Bible says, is a man killer. Jesus has already made it clear back in the book of Matthew that the destructive nature of hatred is equivalent to the act of murder itself. Hear me this morning. Hatred of another person is this desire to get rid of them. You don't want to be around them. You want them out of the picture. Slide 35. H.H. Hobbes says this. Murder is in the heart before it's in the hand. Daniel Aiken says it this way. The driving force that motivates the hater to commit murder stems from Satan himself and is thus a distinguishing mark of his children. Satan loves it when you hate somebody. He loves it. Man, he's well done, now good servant when you hate someone. When you detest someone, he's going way to go. He loves that. He's the very opposite of everything that God stands for. You see, when you love people that you don't like very much and you serve them, you grow. God is using that great gift through the knife and he's chipping away at all of those things that, um, that make you look like the world so that you look more like him to those people. And they may turn to Christ and get saved. And here's another thing. That person that you hated, think about that person's family. If that person gets saved, you may have a whole family getting saved because you changed, because you allowed the Holy Spirit to do his work in you. Amen? How about slide 36? Back in Philippians. Here's some questions. How is my attitude... Or my franaio, my mindset, how is my attitude about the people in this church? What church what happens to my talk when people are difficult and unpleasant? What happens to my talk? How often is grumbling and complaining about people a daily part of my life? Well, so and so is this, and so and so is that, and so and so think about it. How often is grumbling and complaining about people a daily part of the life? See, God had to deal with them when he pulled them out of Israel. They were grumbling and complaining. You know, we had pots of meat back in Egypt. Forget the fact that our women were raped and there was murder and beatings and all that. We had pots of meat back there. Do I struggle to love people when I am asked to give up my time, my plans, my schedule, my possessions, or control? Well, it's quiet again, Dr. Carter. I don't know. <clears throat> do I struggle to agape toy, love people, when I am asked to give up my time, my plans, my schedule, my possessions, or my control? Look at them. I'm just about done. Listen, I only have 18 more pages. We'll be out of here by 4 o'clock. No, I'm kidding. A couple more. Slide 37 and 38. 
So Paul, bring it all around the horns. He says, as a result of all this, he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. For those that are married, everything of yours is hers and everything of hers is yours. Now, in my house, everything is mine. It's my wife's and everything of hers is hers. But <laughs> do nothing, do nothing. Now, listen to the words of Paul because he's speaking under the direction of the Holy Spirit. He says, listen, church, don't do anything from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. What, what, Paul? What? As our buddy Rick would say, what the what? What did Paul mean here? When Paul uses that word selfishness, what does that word mean? I just don't want to assume that people know a definition. Now, what do you think about the word selfishness? What comes to your mind? Slide 38. Selfishness is a person who continually seeks personal advantage and gain over another person without any regard to how it affects or hurts the other person. This is my stuff. This is my stuff. These are my sneakers. These are my shoes. This is my clothes. This is my stuff. See, Paul is warning us about being the type of person who strives to advance themselves by flattery, deceit, false accusation, or any other tactic that hurts another person, stepping over them to get what she wants. When we look at selfish ambition, pride is really the fuel. Pride, here's the thing about pride, because I noted in my own life, pride is blinding. You can be a prideful person and not even realize that it is so blinding. You know, pride was, you know, remember Lucifer? I will arise above them. I will this. I will that. First person singular, I will be just like him. Think about pride, church. It is deceptive. So let's look at Wayne Max and Paul Tripp's definitions and then we'll be done. Slide 39 to 40. Wayne Mack defines pride as, please hear this, this is important. Pride consists in attributing to ourselves, demanding for ourselves, the honor, privileges, prerogatives, rights, and powers that are due God alone. It is the very root and essence of sin because pride at its core is idolatry of self. That is, I am entitled to everything. That's what the government loves. I'm entitled to all of this. I'm entitled. A proud person has put himself in God's place where here's the person and everything that person wants revolves around pleasing them, doing things the way that person wants, when that person wants it, how the person, that person wants it without any regard to anybody else. That is pride. And when you get saved, God starts to crush that pride. Paul, slide 40. Paul Tripp says this. I find it easy to be motivated by my personal rights and position. <clears throat> I have to say this about marriage. Marriage is not the wife is a doormat. When God says, wives, submit to your husbands under the Lord, the Greek word there is hupotasso. It doesn't mean that you say, do it now, you are my slave. It is, if you are loving her the way you're supposed to love her and honor her, she will willingly come under your leadership as long as your leadership is under his leadership. Because if it ain't under his leadership, you hurt her. Amen. So Paul again says, I find it easy to be motivated by my personal rights, 
my position. I struggle when I am asked to give up my time, my plans, my schedule, my possessions, and my control. Slide 41, and then we're done. Let me close with some of these questions. This is from Tim Lane. He was one of my seminary professors. I, I love what he says here. Do you hold others to a higher standard than you do yourself? Do people regularly feel bruised in their relationship with you? Do you say things that hurt and crush a person's spirit and their heart with your mouth because you want your own way? Do people feel bruised in their relationship they have with you? You need to repent. You need to come to Christ. Do you love people with limits that are driven by your own perceived needs or interests? Do we enter relationships for personal pleasure and fun, but we want lower personal costs and high self-defined returns? I'll love you as long as you give me what I want, do what I want, say what I want, what I want, how I want, why I want it. I know this was hard, as my father-in-law often says, to fit in the ear. But I'm just preaching what the text says. I'm going to stop here this morning. I can already feel all of our brains are dripping out of our ears. And I know we've covered a lot this morning. Let me close with some questions for you to chew on. Have you, before you step into 2024, have you truly, truly surrendered your life to Christ? Have you done that? Have you placed your faith and trust in him, not only as Savior, but as Lord? Does the way you live your life encourage the people around you to want to know more about who he is because they see how he has radically changed your life? That you're not the same person you were before you got saved. Because if you're the same person before you got saved, chances are you really are not saved. You see, when he comes in and dwells you, he begins to do a work in you. And the things that you used to love grow strangely dim as your heart is turned towards him. Remember, as I close, the very worst about me and you, the Father places on Jesus. He dies on the cross, sheds his blood, pays it in full. And the very best about Jesus, and this is what happened at the cross, read it yourself in John 20, gets placed on you. So when you die, you're ushered in heaven, not because you deserve it, not because I deserve it, because Jesus paid it all. There's hope in your relationship with Christ. There's hope there. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace in Yeshua's name. Amen. If you're going